Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Dave DeWitt. He's one of the world's foremost authorities on chili peppers and spicy foods. He's a food historian and associate professor at New Mexico State University. He's authored more than 50 books, mostly on chili peppers and fiery foods, also including novels, food histories, and a travel guide. And his latest book is Microfarming for Profit, in which he shows how unused or underused land can be turned into successful microfarms, from peppers to honey, oysters to oyster mushrooms, ginseng to garlic. DeWitt profiles successful microfarms and details his own experiences. Dave DeWitt lives with his wife, Mary Jane Willen, in South Valley of Albuquerque. The website is dave-dewitt.com. And uh, he was to have appeared at the King's English uh, Bookshop tomorrow evening. That event is in the process of being rescheduled and uh, likely in June. So stay tuned for that. Dave DeWitt, welcome to the program. Hey, Tom. Good talking to you. Uh, I see on your, uh, on your blog, you, uh, you did a Cinco de Mayo in Italy. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun, you know. It's hard to find some of the ingredients, but we gave it a good shot, and as long as they had some chili peppers and tortillas, we were good to go. <laughs> as you as you uh, write, uh, Italy had absolutely nothing to do with Mexican armies, unlike the victory over the French forces, the Battle of no. Puebla. That's why we no, celebrate Cinco de Mayo. used to have a party, and the, t- the Italians yeah. are of that uh, <laughs> thought process. But uh, I thought of your uh, previous book, Precious Cargo, How Foods from the Americas Changed the World. And it, 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 in a certain way, it's it's very appropriate. Yes, yes, it is. And uh, I'm proud to say that that book uh, won uh, the Culinary History of the Year Award from the International Association of Culinary Professionals. And it's the first honor like that I've ever won. So I'm kind of proud of myself. I've, I've worked a long time on that book, a lot of research and, and so forth. And it's good to see it recognized. So just parenthetically, I don't want to refer to this. And, I, and my promotional announcements uh, through the weekend, I... Mention this, so we better better do it. Um, so, what? Uh, for example, tomatoes. I think you know anything that ends with in the Nahuatl, uh, you know, a t o, and that sort of thing. What what are what are some of the foods that uh, swept the world? Well, these are all foods of American origin. When I say American, I'm talking about North America, Central America, and South America. Uh, foods that um, we take for granted. But uh, they uh, had a lot to do with world history, as, as it turns out. We're talking about potatoes, tomatoes, um, chili peppers, chocolate, pineapples, and the list goes on and on. And I cover them as best I can, uh, considering the broad nature of this particular uh, subject. And I try to tell the best stories and the stories that pertain most to um, what happened in history. And uh, everybody knows about um, the potato famine in uh, Ireland. Um, and that was, of course, uh, directly the, the result of a, a monocultural crop. In other words, all, all those potatoes were clones of each other, and, and when Phytophthora hit, um, uh, there was no protection. There was no other variety that could withstand that particular disease, and hence the, the, uh, the ruination of, of the you know, potato farming industry uh, and so forth like that. But in other countries where disaster did not occur, uh, potatoes were the the best crop for growing in rather cold northern climates and had more calories per acre than than wheat did and so um, uh, the potatoes uh, that were raised in Germany and uh, in Russia actually uh, changed history because they they increased the population and and enabled um, the you know the rise of, of Germany to World War two and then the rise of, of Russia and the Soviet Union um, and so 
we, we don't think about things like that. We just say, you know, I'm going to have some mashed potatoes for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. had a profound influence um, and were very, very popular in, in France and had their own um, potato guru, um, a, a guy named Parmentier, who uh, convinced the French government that they were not poisonous and that they should be eaten and uh, got the king and the queen to wear flower, uh, potato flowers in their hair and so forth. There are all kinds of stories like that that are in Precious Cargo. And, uh, of course, I you know, love chili peppers, but I did not you know, focus on chili peppers for this book. They're just one of a number of, of, of crops I, I cover. And, of course, uh, the, probably the most influential one of all was uh, what we call corn or maize, and that's a uniquely American uh, crop. And the myths about that, were, you know, were that in, in other countries and so forth, that they wouldn't eat corn and it was just animal food. Well, it was animal food, but uh, human beings were eating it a lot because it was so cheap to grow and easy to grow and that sort of thing. So a lot of the, uh, uh, the rumors about corn uh, just being, uh, you know, used for animal fodder were not true. As a matter of fact, 98% of the corn that was grown in, in countries in Africa was human food. And uh, it, was, it you know, saved a lot of African countries, mass starvation and so forth. And uh, sweet potatoes were big in China, for example. It hmm. just goes on and on. The, the yeah. book's you know, 400 pages long, so I, yeah. it's hard for me to yeah. summarize yeah. it here. But, Fascinating, um, yeah. Uh, oh, it was t- is tomato, is that an American oh, yeah. food is that, that came from the Americas? Mm-hmm. Yes, it did. And you refer and, to it, I know it's in, in Mark Farming for Profit, do you refer to the cult of tomato. There's <laughs> tomato. Well, tomato really swept it, the world. And in, in the United States, yes. But, you know, the country uh, that in Europe that's most famous for tomatoes is, is a country that took, you know, it took 200 years for, t- for tomatoes to get popular in Italy, where it just came from. And now, of course, they're enormously popular. But they, they were viewed um, with suspicion and uh, uh, people thinking that they were somehow poisonous. And, of course, they were not. Hmm. Um, and uh, it just took a long time for uh, the Italians to, uh, to like tomatoes. And they had to, you know, by the time it took t- uh, tomatoes probably, you know, 150 years to move from the very tip of the boot, so to speak, all the way up to Parma. Uh, they just uh, gradually, people would like them and, you know, what actually, when, when, when they connected with pasta, that's when tomatoes got really big. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I was going to ask, um, and so, you know, my former statement, tomatoes swept the world, maybe not so much, but certainly it <laughs> permeated Italian cooking to the, to the point where it's you know it's Italian cooking is known as tomato based right so yes especially in the south not so much yeah. in the north but okay it is really tomato based in the uh, in the south but of course tomatoes are all over Italy now so how how does how that happen then is something in the culture or is it as simple as it it connects very well with pasta what what happened well then? you know it's it was just. Um, uh, the entire history, food history of Italy has to do with in- introduced crops. Like, for example, you can't make pasta with the same kind of wheat that you make bread with. You had to make it with durum wheat, a, a much stronger um, wheat. And so after that was introduced, you know, there was there was the rise of, of pasta um, in Italy. And, uh, you know, the famous Italian sweets could not have come about until sugar was introduced because sugar was not grown in Italy. It eventually was grown in, in, in Sicily, um, uh, right off the coast, uh, far south. And so, uh, and then tomatoes came around, and you can see now that there was just a, a whole bunch of 
foreign crops that were introduced into Italy to create the cuisines that we have today, and that's what I like to write about is is how that happened. I wrote a book, um, uh, you know, called Da Vinci's Kitchen, in which I explored how these foreign crops entered the country and eventually became so popular that they dominate, and chili peppers are doing that now in Italy. Um, uh, they're very, very popular. There's probably five huge chili pepper festivals. Um, I've been to uh, one of them, the Pepperoncini Festival down in Diamante, which is way far south. Um, and that was fun. They had 150,000 people in five days at that particular festival. But it's not only about chili peppers. It's about, you know, the Italians wanting to throw a big party. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's, that's, always, that's always good, yes. Uh, so you set out to, I don't know, maybe be on a Ph.D. track in English. How did you get into chili peppers, spicy well, foods? Um, I moved to New Mexico um, in late 1974 um, from Richmond, Virginia, and uh, the only reason I moved there was because I had come out on a vacation in July of 74 and just fell in love with the state. I'd never been west of the Mississippi, and I came out on a, you know, a vacation and fell in love with New Mexico and just decided I wanted to live in New Mexico. So uh, my wife at the time and I uh, moved out. I had you know very little savings no job lined up, um, and one basic goal, which was to start my freelance writing career. And um, I soon learned that I wanted to write about food and travel specifically uh, because I was so fascinated with both in, in New Mexico. And uh, after, I, after I sold a few articles and, and got on a regular writing track, I realized you cannot write about food in New Mexico without writing about chili peppers. And I tried to find you know, what I could out, uh, find out about them. And uh, when I would go visiting around the state, I'd always stop at the library, talk to the librarian, and ask her if she had a file on chili peppers and could I photocopy it. And everybody said yes, and I gradually built up information about it and um, wrote so many articles that um, I tried for a book. And um, uh, I had a, got an agent, found an agent, and started pitching a book called The Fiery Cuisines, which eventually was published, and that was the first one. And uh, then, because I was so successful writing about chili peppers, I kept writing about them. And uh, <laughs> I tried to... There, you know, chili peppers um, involve a lot of different disciplines. Um, everything, not only food, food but medicine and uh, archaeology and all these kinds of things. And so there's a lot to write about. And I would write a health book about chili peppers, and I'd write a book about the, the cooking in South America with chili peppers, and just went on and on. And I know it seems silly to focus on something like that. But, you know, professional writers write to make money. That's why we write. I mean, you can talk about being noble and, and saving the world and all that kind of stuff. But I I got into a, a thing where I was writing for money. I still am. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Book, yes, I have a definitely. book coming out in January that's the first um, field guide to peppers ever ever written. Oh, excellent, um, excellent. I wonder... Yeah, so is, there was a niche there. I'm, I'm trying to fill it. Well, and it sounds like very successfully. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about peppers. We'll get into, of course, microfarming. Very interesting right. book. And uh, there's at least one Utah f- uh, farm profile to Rock Hill Creamery right uh, here, mm-hmm. which just uh, about 15 miles north of where we're, we're talking uh, to people now. Um, my experience with, with uh, you know, chili peppers and, and spicy food has generally been with friends who have taken this on as sort of an extreme sport. Uh, had had a roommate once who was who was into trying to find the the spiciest thing he could 
he could survive. I think there's there's that one. There's there's a strain of it. Although I, you know, chili peppers. There's a lot more to it, as you just said. Well, the uh, uh, everybody likes the biggest, the fastest, the best, and and chili peppers. It's the hottest. And uh, there's a probably a book on on the quest for the hottest pepper. Um, and it's just been going on since since you know I I was editor of Chili Pepper magazine, and the the latest uh, thing. Uh, that we had discussed, think think we had discovered was the habanero, and nobody knew anything about habaneros. And so, in the magazine, I started accepting articles and writing articles about it. And soon, it became extremely popular. Uh, if, at first, people thought they couldn't eat it, but if they did some creativity and not, didn't use so much of it, and you can make, you can stretch it out, and you can also dilute it with a lot of food, uh, habaneros came into uh, just general usage, and now, you know, um, I can go two minutes from my house to the Albertson supermarket, and there will be fresh habaneros in the produce department. That's how far chili peppers have advanced in, say, the last 20, 25, hmm. 30 years, um, to the point where nobody would touch something, and now it's so popular that it has to be stocked by a major supermarket, supermarket chain. So I don't know whether the super hot chilies we're seeing now, namely... Um, uh, the you know scorpion and the uh, all these you know super hots uh, baracapores and there's a whole bunch of them and they you know range about one million Scoville heat units where the habanero was about a quarter of a million Scoville heat units and whether or not they'll get to the point that habaneros have reached I don't know we'll see only only time will tell in this particular thing but these all peppers you know you have to be careful with them. Um, even the green New Mexico chilies that turn red and so forth like that. If you know, you should when you're processing them, when you're working with them, roasting and peeling and so forth. Everybody should wear gloves when they are dealing with chili peppers because capsaicin, the active ingredient in chili peppers, is extremely powerful. Um, and uh, if you get it in your eyes or other sensitive body parts, it's extremely painful. So you you should be careful uh, when doing that. And I'll just you know advise people on that right now. Mm. There are people who um, claim to be able to eat the hottest chili peppers, who eat the hottest sauces, and so forth like that, but all that, that has nothing to do with their uh, age, their gender, their ethnicity, or anything like that. It's just that they have a, a very small number of capsaicin receptors in their mouth and tongue, just like taste buds. There are super tasters and there are non-tasters out there, and the same happens with the capsaicin receptors. And the the big new theory now is is we we mammals and the mammals as a as a large group here all have capsaicin receptors because we co-evolved with them. Uh, we co-evolved with chili peppers. So um, I'm I'm still studying up on that. I can't speak too authoritatively about it. But um, why did this happen? Well, to prevent mammals specifically from eating chili peppers and consuming the seeds and digesting the seeds. The seeds pass through birds without being digested, and that's how the early ones were spread. But mammals destroy them. So it, from a plant's point of view, they didn't want to be destroyed, so they, they made a phytochemical that, um, just like trees have certain phytochemicals that they issue to repel bugs and stuff like that, so that the peppers would, say, um, uh, not, have, not have their seeds destroyed by mammals, and this capsaicin was to repel mammals. But the ironic thing is, is that what was supposed to repel humans became, humans became fond of them, and now it's humans that 
save the seeds and continue chili peppers. <laughs> and that's sort of ironic, but the, but the plant won out in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, that is ironic. <laughs> uh, so the, it's okay. crazy, but that's the way it is. The capsaicin is there. Uh, you know, there helpful benefits to to peppers, especially the, the really hot ones. Well, I don't. You know, that's a, that's a good question. It, it does prevent some animals from eating them, but uh, there have been instances of uh, uh, permission being given to shoot deer out of season when they're raiding uh, chili pepper fields in southern New Mexico. So uh, sometimes they're repelled, but if they're hungry enough, they'll apparently will will eat them. Uh, the capsaicin uh, must have other uses. I'd, I'm not sure what the other uses would be for a plant, but um, uh, the, the 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 heat in chili peppers has to do, of course, the amount of capsaicin the, the the pod is producing. But you can you can stimulate them to produce more by stressing the plants, and so uh, maybe 50% of the heat of a chili pepper is uh, genetic, and 50% is environmental. Um, if you withhold water, um, if, if you grow them at high altitudes where there's more ultraviolet light, all these things stress peppers and make them hotter. Uh, so um, that's why when the testing is done, uh, they go to a whole field and pick at random uh, just to make sure they're not getting one specific plant that's been severely stressed and is the hottest one there. They want a, an average uh, to make it you know, uh, more scientific, a, a replicable experiment in other words something that can be replicated um and that's that's how they do it um so if, if it if a you know if one batch says it was uh, one million scoville units they expect to be able to take the same field the following year under the similar conditions and it'll be approximately the same uh, heat level and that means it's a stable variety so we're uh, talking a little little lesson for you on, on a, a chemical that's not found anywhere else except chili peppers. No other plant, animal, mineral, nothing. Just chili peppers. Just chili peppers. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking with Dave DeWitt. His book is Micro Farming for Profit, and we're, we'll talk about that as a, for the rest of the program as we go along here. Uh, just before we go to break, um, you're, uh, I guess, founder of the National Fiery Foods and Barbecue Show that happens in Albuquerque, number 26th, just this past well, March. Actually, we're now in our 28th year 28th, of doing that, okay. and, and yes, uh, my wife and I did found that show um, quite a few years ago. <laughs> so what what kinds of what, what what kind of a crowd do you get to to the National Fiery Foods uh, show? Well, uh, we're open to both the trade and the general public, um, so we get a lot of people. We get 20,000 people in three days uh, to this particular show. Um, it's one of New Mexico's most popular shows after the Balloon Fiesta and the State Fair. It probably is the third most popular show in, in the state. Um, and p- that just goes to show you that we've been able to win people over to our cult of eating hot peppers. <laughs> so is it mostly <laughs> mostly people in the, in the cult? I guess you'd have, I don't know, maybe chefs want to put this in their food, but it, it's, it's kind of an adventure, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, uh, of course, I'm joking about a, a cult. We were teased about that because... <laughs> Um, it's our state vegetable, and of course, chili peppers are not a vegetable; um, they're a fruit. <laughs> uh, goes to show you, uh, we have two yes. state vegetables: the pinto bean, which is a legume, and the chili pepper, which is a fruit. So that's yeah. the state of our legislature. <laughs> that, that's that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we in Utah, we we suffer from the uh, the other state syndrome. I think our up until recently, our tree was the Colorado spruce i think and it was, <laughs> california gull is our bird and 
kind of kind of have a, a syndrome that way. We recently changed our, our tree to the aspen, so that that's nice. Oh, that's better. Yeah. Uh, well, let's take a break. We'll come back with Dave DeWitt. We'll talk about micro farming. This is five acres or less, and this is an entrepreneurial guide. How to make a profit from this. It's right in the title, Microfarming for Profit, although you could take lessons, I'm sure, in your uh, garden. We'll talk about this and more following break. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. Think about putting all your snack food in an inconvenient cupboard, stashing your fruits and veggies at eye level in the fridge, and getting yourself some smaller dinner plates. It's strategies to stop mindless eating this week on The Splendid Table. The show about life's appetites from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Dining Services Junction, offering breakfast, salads, sandwiches, pastas, and desserts located at the base of Mountain View and Valley View Towers on the USU campus. Information at usu.edu slash dining. You're listening to Utah Public Radio at Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and my guest is Dave DeWitt. He's one of the world's foremost authorities on chili peppers and spicy foods. That's what we've been talking about. He's a food historian, associate professor at New Mexico State University, and co-producer of the National Fiery Foods and Barbecue Show. It happens each March. He's author of more than 50 books, mostly on chili peppers and fiery foods, but also including novels, food histories, and a travel guide. We're going to get into talking now about his latest book, Micro Farming for Profit, in which he shows how unused or underused land can be turned into successful micro farms. Uh, Dave DeWitt, tell me about your first micro farm. I guess you maybe wouldn't have called it that at, at the time. Your your wife at the time, this is in Richmond, Virginia, wanted to start a business. Yeah, she uh, had an idea for a retail plant shop um, because at the time, uh, the fad um, around the country was terrariums, and so it seemed like everybody had a terrarium, and there was no actual. Of course, we didn't have big box stores back in those days. Um, uh, Sears was probably the only big box store that there was uh, in those days, so we didn't have a, you know, um, uh, Home Depot or, or someplace like that um, that uh, to get all this stuff. So she decided that she wanted a retail um, uh, shop that sold terrariums and the plants to go in. Uh, that I think the, the proper plural is terraria, but that sounds weird so <laughs> to say terrariums. Uh, so that was her idea, and she called it the Great Terrarium. And but we had to have plants for it, and uh, it was too expensive to go to nurseries and buy them wholesale. So I decided I would grow the little cacti and and the uh, uh, the different plants that you could put inside inside a terrarium. And so I built a greenhouse and and started taking cuttings from plants and. Um, doing that kind of a thing, and the plants, you know, I wasn't charging my wife, you know, a, a wholesale uh, fee to do this. I was just doing it as part of the whole family thing, and I like to grow things that I, my parents had been avid gardeners, and I knew a lot about plants, and so it was pretty easy for me to, to grow these, and um, it was successful. The whole thing was successful, and the profit was made after the first year, and then uh, my wife at the time, whose name was Lucy, uh, decided she didn't like retail. She loved the plants, and she loved what she was doing. She loved creating um, uh, the the terrariums themselves and selling them at a nice bit of money. But she didn't like retail, and it just uh, you know kept her down. She had to work Saturdays, sometimes Sundays, and uh, you know lots of hours on the holidays. She just didn't do it, so she closed it down. And 
paid all the bills, and that was it. So uh, that was my first experience. But, um, you know, I, I really do uh, like growing plants. As a matter of fact, just before uh, you guys called, I was out putting in uh, peppers in, in the garden. And I'm not kidding. I have, <laughs> I've had a very busy uh, May, and I haven't had a chance to put the garden in yet. And uh, so I, you know, uh, I was putting in bell peppers and some habaneros and some serranos and some New Mexico chilies. Um, and got it done. We got them all watered, so oh, ready for the radio interview. Oh, ex- excellent. Great. Um, so that gets us into um, the, the fact this book is an entrepreneurial guide, market farming for right. profit, right? It, so and you, have some yeah. prol- you have some questions for people at the beginning of the book. Uh, you know, you can do this as a hobby, do this as a backyard garden, and that's great. A lot of people do that. But if you want to turn it into a business, you you, you got to be sure that you – really want to do that put in the time i guess and as your wife uh, at the time uh, found out she wasn't cut out for that that's not what she wanted to do that's what she found out yes and and that can be you know um anybody uh you have to if you're going to have a business then you have to learn how to run a business and and start a business and and what you have those kinds of things so this book is not a growing guide Telling people how to grow the, you know, suggested crops and so forth like that. I do give a few little hints along the way, but basically this is a book about how to how to start a micro farm as a business, and uh, that's why we called it micro farming for profit um, to make sure people know that that they're starting a business, even if you're growing, say, herbs and drying them and putting them in jars and selling them at the farmer's market, uh, that is a business. In other words, you're making money off of your hobby, supposedly. And if, if you're making money, then uh, it is a business, and you better uh, you know, do it right, or you won't be in business very long. You'll be back to hobby gardening. Um, and it just seemed to me that there wasn't really any guide out there that, that told people um, exactly how to 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 have a business that was a micro farm, so that that's most of what the book is all about. Um, then explaining the more profitable crops that people can grow, um, and and also value added products, and that's that's basically where most of the money is in micro farming is having some kind of a product, not just the produce itself, not just tomatoes that you're you know harvesting from your plants and and going down to the farmers market and and peddling the tomatoes, uh, but uh, value-added products like sauces, like sun-dried tomatoes, like um, tomato powders, like all those kinds of things that can be done with tomatoes. So, and they're more they're more profitable than than produce. That's why they call they're called value-added. Um, uh, and most people uh, end up having a food business if if they're doing that with tomatoes, um, and uh, you know making the various products that tomatoes can, can be included in, including salsas, for example. If you want to combine tomatoes and and your jalapenos that you're growing, then you might want to consider, you know, making a salsa. And, and just remember that most businesses like that, I'm not talking about just drying, um, say, herbs and so forth like that, but if you're going to be cooking and doing all that, you have to have a, a kitchen that's that's legal and designed for that. You can't just make it in your in your own home kitchen and then sell it to the general public in most places. So uh, I would remind people of that. And this is the kind of thing that, that I, I cover in the book is what you can and cannot do, what kind of licensing uh, is required, what crops are legal where, and, um, of course, um, you know, half the states in the United States now allow uh, people to use uh, medical marijuana. So I, that's one of the crops I talk about. It's controversial, yes. Um, but it's getting less controversial as states like Washington and Colorado reveal the 
um, the tax profits they're making by allowing this in their particular state. So um, I urge people not to break the law uh, in any way, shape, or form with this, because why have a business if you're going to ruin it by doing it wrong? So, this, will uh, be a, this will be a. I was going to ask you at some point. <laughs> you come clean in the book here, so I'll ask you about this. And the statute of limitations is passed. Y- yes. y- you were involved in an illegal marijuana I was. operation. I was. Uh, oh. I was younger, uh, uh, or maybe we should say I was so much older than I'm younger than that now, uh, in the sense that uh, I would never do anything like that now. Um, uh, and but I. I was persuaded because of my knowledge of how to grow crops um, uh, to to do an illegal marijuana operation, and everything that could go wrong went wrong, um, which is a good reason not to do an illegal mm-hmm. uh, operation. Um, it's just extremely difficult to uh, to do it, especially security and um, uh, security. Even if you're growing illegally, you have to consider security when you have, say. Um, a 14 foot plant in your backyard that's worth a thousand bucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to consider those kinds of things. And and uh, although I tried, uh, I didn't know as much about security as I do now. Um, and uh, actually, uh, except for the security, everything went well. Uh, I mean, in other words, the crop was a good crop, but it was illegal. So, um, and your your experience was complete with I think your and. and Part of your crop gets stolen, and then the, then yes. there's a, then you yes. try to you went, went to get it back, and the the whole thing. This I guess this could have spiraled out at several times, and your life could have taken a different direction. Yes, it could have, and that's why I was foolish to do it. Um, uh, and I explained in in uh, uh, in the books, you know, that I was foolish to do it, and I'm not advising people to do that. But I, you know, I have I have to tell the truth. Um, uh, you know the. Uh, C-SPAN interviewed me um, about the whole subject and asked me why I, I wrote a book, a previous book called Growing Medical Marijuana, and I gave them the same answer I, I gave you a little while ago. I did it for money. I, I made a lot of money on that particular book. Um, and I used the experiences um, of illegally growing it, and a friend of mine who is growing it legally, um, and uh, that's I had enough knowledge about it to be able to write the book, um, and I did it for money. And uh, so... Uh, now, of course, I'm uh, trying to make money on microfarming for profit, not only by, by microfarming, but also writing about microfarming, as I was doing it um, for the past two years and specializing in two particular crops. Uh, one was tomatoes because I, I had a connection with a chef, and I could supply him the kind of tomatoes he needed, namely um, different colors of sun-dried tomatoes was what he was doing, so he could make uh, artistic sauces. Um, that didn't look like tomato sauces. They, l- they would look purple or, you know, a bright yellow and, and things like that. And uh, so he was, um, uh, con- I contracted with him to grow t- uh, different tomatoes specifically for that purpose. Um, and then uh, we were growing super hot chilies. Um, um, and we had a pretty good-sized uh, operation last year. Uh, you know, it was only about two acres uh, in six different fields, but we ended up growing 1.8 tons of of super hot chilies, and so that was um, uh, successful. And it's still, you know, a micro farm in the sense that it's under five acres. That's my definition. I just arbitrarily said five acres. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there are many people who only use a quarter of an acre, and many people who use, you know, fifteen, twenty acres. That's pretty a pretty small farm when you consider the big industrial farms and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
I was I was pleased that um, I was able to write about uh, micro farming as I was being a micro farmer. I thought that would, was just particularly appropriate. Um, I'm not going to be able to do the same thing this year. In other words, I'm not micro farming this year just because my uh, I'm also launching a, a career as a public speaker, and I have obligations that are going to prevent me from farming as much. I, like, for example, for two summers, we didn't go anywhere because I was micro-farming and I was writing the book, so uh, we didn't travel for the for the growing season. And now that I've finished the, uh, the micro-farming for now and finished the book, um, we had, we're booked up all summer, so I can't really micro-farm um, because I don't have any employees mm, uh, that, can, right. that can do that kind of work and that, that would probably eat up all my profits anyway right so, right i'm back to, i'm back to hot, being a hobbyist uh for the peppers <laughs> i just put in this morning yeah i guess i guess you could go back and forth like i see the uh by the way we're talking with dave dewitt my book is Microfarming for profit and you're welcome to join the conversation if you have a question or comment hope that you will 1-800-826-1495 1-800-826-1495 toll-free number or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com upraxcess at gmail.com I want to uh, get into a couple of, uh, you have some examples, and uh, let me start with, and learning lessons from successful micro-farmers. First, uh, I want to tout is uh, from right here in uh, Cache Valley, where this broadcast is originating, uh, Rock Hill Creamery and Farmstead Cheese, uh, Pete Schropp and, uh, and uh, Jennifer Hines. Um, they have the, the, they have a very specific business plan. It's I believe it's six cows. They don't plan to expand, and they they concentrate on on making the the cheese tender care of the cheese and make it uh, you know highest quality. Yeah, that's um, you know they have eight unique signature cheeses, and um, so this is a value added product, and it's not about. Um, you know, selling milk and cream to their neighbors. Uh, this is um, uh, these cheeses are specifically um, uh, what people want to buy in terms of specialty cheeses, and and this is a, a growing industry. Cheese making, it's it's good to see this. Um, it's sort of like the uh, uh, what's happened with the specialty beers and all the brew pubs and and breweries that have sprung up all over the country. Um, and you know, neither one of those is is appropriate for everyone. In other words, if you're going to do what what they're doing at, at the uh, at the creamery, uh, you have to have a love of cows to start with. I would imagine you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to you know do something that uh, like for example, if you hate goats, then you don't want to be manufacturing goat cheese. Um, and there are some people, uh, I guess, who don't like goats. I find them pretty charming, more charming than cows, but. Uh, uh, you know, we we live in the South Valley, which is uh, of Albuquerque, which is um, uh, pretty much agriculturally oriented. Uh, and uh, I see goats all the time, and um, uh, they they look interesting to me. I think I'd, I I could have goat goats if if I had the room. I would have goats rather than cows. But um, the um, the Rock Hill Creamery, uh, it's all about um, you know the value added products. And if you're going to do that um, sort of thing, you have to have the right setup for it. And it takes a different setup for each microfarm. And, and uh, we also talk about people who um, raise oysters on their microfarm. And obviously, you can't do that everywhere. And I wouldn't think you could have you know six cows everywhere. You'd have to right. you, yeah. have, you have to figure out exactly how you're going to feed them for one thing. Or if you, of course, if you, if you have large pasture, that would help. But probably you're going to have to you know you have to have a business plan. And that's 
obviously what they have done. And that's why in the micro-farming book, I talk about writing a business plan and why it's so important, even if you change it every year. Mm-hmm. It's still important to write all these things down and then, you know, see how this is going to flow in, uh, not only for business, but into your life as well, because uh, these are all, you know, either limited partnerships or sole um, proprietorships, um, uh, uh sometimes partnerships, mostly they're sole proprietorships uh, in, ter- in terms of sole meaning the family. Yes. And uh, so how uh, is doing all this work going to impact uh, your life and your other job, if you have another job, and many people do, um, or is this going to be what you're doing uh, when you retire to supplement your retirement income? Um, and will that interfere, say, with uh, your dream to drive around the country in a Winnebago? So right, yeah. Those are all the kinds of things you have to consider because it can change your life um, in good ways and and uh, and bad ways too. If you if you've invested a lot of money in your micro farm and your micro farm fails, uh, then you better have a backup plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and you should uh, consider the possibility that you will fail. Um, uh, not I don't know what the uh, percentage is for micro farms, but for any business that starts up, there's um, a large number of them that fail. Um, for one reason or another. And so that's just a fact of life. I'm not being negative. I'm just pointing out when you make your business plan, you've got to think about what are you going to do if what you're making doesn't sell very well and, and you're working your tail off and you're not making any money and you're putting more and more money into it. Maybe it's time to think of something else to do rather than micro farming. So um, I, I try to shoot from the hip. Uh, so to speak. Um, I'm not trying to convince people to be microfarmers, I guess is what I'm saying. Right, I'm, yeah. I'm just giving them all the options and the possibilities to see whether it, that's a good thing for them to do. Sometimes you have to do it um, in order to, to learn those things, but on occasion, after you've written the business plan and done a few tests on it, you may decide that you know, either um, tomatoes or uh, fancy cheeses are not what you want to do uh, maybe you'll switch crops, or maybe you'll just, you know, find another way to make money. So, um, uh, but uh, I think for for people who like to garden as a hobby, uh, those would be the people who'd be most likely, um, uh, because if you're doing all this um, and making all these jams and jellies, say, and you're giving them away to your friends, um, you may have the beginnings of a micro farm right there. Uh, and, and you can and so, so people who do that um, uh, uh, maybe you have four peach trees in your backyard and the, the overwhelming number of peaches and you've got to do something with them and you you know might might try making the jams and so forth and and seeing whether they sell or not uh, that's a good way to experiment uh, to to get into it and and start you know with a value added you're not selling baskets of peaches uh, on the corner. With your lemonade stand, you're you're actually making a product that has a much higher value than um, the peach that would be sitting uh, at, at your at your produce stand. So uh, uh, I try uh, to take all these things into consideration right, in the book. Right. But admittedly, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's of you know not everybody is thinking about micro farming um, as a way to make um, a, a good solid living of you know fifty sixty thousand dollars a year. I'm sure that. There's people who have turned their micro farms into those kinds of operations, uh, but uh, I recommend it for people who have some time on their hands because um, when I had my uh, uh, all my micro farming stuff going with the the super hot fields that I was I wasn't actually doing the farming but I was managing those fields 
uh, in the sense that I was going to be the one who collected all the the, the pods and paid them for the people for them. Um, but when I was working, uh, I had I don't know I think I think I probably had forty or fifty tomato plants um, producing and all that, and that took a lot of work. Uh, I would say that I I spent three or four hours a day just gardening. Uh, there's just a lot to do when you and I I probably didn't have even a quarter of an acre. It was just a lot of work, so you got to you got to like doing it. Yeah, certainly, and I can see how it'd be uh, tempting, at least. To, you know, to, it would seem like a natural transition. Your your backyard garden grows and grows. You start providing uh, you know crops to the farmers market, and then you think I'm going to make it into a business. So that's uh, these are. Uh, some encouraging and cautionary tales here. We're talking with Dave DeWitt. The book is Micro Farming for Profit. You can join us at 1-800-826-1495, toll-free, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. I want to have you talk, uh, Dave DeWitt, about an inspiration for you. You've, you've uh, patterned, I think, a lot of your operations after Dick Thompson, one of the founders of Practical Farmers of Iowa, he practiced what he called a more balanced farming system. Tell me about that. Well, you know, you hear, is the, is the farm organic? Um, and he was, he was a believer in striving to have everything organic, but realizing that um, sometimes it's impossible. And I have a perfect example of, of that, where we could not, grow organically when we wanted to. Um, our first test field for the, uh, the super hot chili peppers um, was down in, in Las Cruces, and we tried to um, do everything um, organically. However, bordering one side of the field was a pecan grove, and on the other side, uh, they were growing onions, and they spray pecans and onions for aphids. And where do you think the aphids went when they no longer had a, a nice um, pest, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, they, they went to our farm is what happened. They just, uh, the, they would be driven away by the spraying and land in our field where there was no spraying and they would eat everything. Um, and there was nothing we could do in that particular field. Well, there were two options. One, we could spray as well, which we did. Um, uh, fortunately, we were spraying them before the fruits had formed, uh, the pods had formed, um, or we could um, move the field, which we eventually did, and that's why I was growing in Albuquerque, because we don't have pecans being grown in the valley of Albuquerque, and we don't have very many onions, if any, commercial onions. I don't think there's an onion field in, in our county. Um, and so we could grow organically, and did grow organically, where it was possible to do that, but there's no sense striving to have an organic farm if you're surrounded by people who are not organic and are using, um, you know, chemicals on their uh, on their plants. So uh, he he had he believed that as well, and, and it's good and noble to try to do these things, uh, but um, uh, sometimes it's impossible. So you have to be a, a realist about it, and and then you have to learn proper pest management if if you're going to be using any kind of chemicals. The great thing about growing organically is you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. <laughs> you know, but then again, um, your plants are are vulnerable, and in some ways they're going to be vulnerable regardless if you if you spray or, or whatever. I don't think you can spray enough to keep the leaf hoppers um, off uh, your chilies and tomato plants, and they transmit viruses. 
Um, and so if a leafhopper transmits a virus to your tomato plant, that plant is doomed, and there's nothing you can do, and no amount of spraying is going to save it, um, and that sort of thing. So um, uh, not even growing organically is the answer sometimes, uh, because uh, in some years I will replace every single tomato plant at least once uh, because of uh, curly top virus. Um, and the beet leafhopper is the uh, the one transmitting that, and uh, the great thing about it is, uh, or the interesting thing about it is, nobody seems to know how to stop this particular pest. The entomologists um, have theories, but um, uh, nobody's ever figured it out. So um, it's, it's one of the things you have to look out for. And I go into that in the microfarming book, too, um, is that... Um, uh, you are dealing with nature here, and uh, nature is not always a kind thing. Uh, my brother tried to have a little micro farm in Sarasota, Florida, with chili peppers. Uh, Going to make chili powders um, and and sell them probably at the farmers markets and so forth like that. And his they received you know four inches of rain over the week over one weekend. His plants were completely um, underwater, literally underwater, and that ruined his attempt at that. And I don't know that you can. You know, in a situation like that, high winds are a problem for all plants um, that that uh, are in the garden. So all these things you have to consider. Some of them you can deal with, and some of them you can't. And that's a drawback to having a micro farm. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's no, it's no worse in a micro farm uh, than it is if you're growing the same amount of produce. You know, just as a hobby. Right. Uh, the same things can happen. Uh, but you know, if you've invested a lot of money in it and you get bad weather, well, that, that's unfortunate, and that's one of the things you have to consider. If you want to be a micro farmer, uh, you're going to deal with the same problems that uh, the bigger farmers have: um, uh, water, drought, um, all these things. Uh, it's difficult to do, so you have to have a good supply of water and inexpensive, um, uh, you know, supply of water. And that's why a lot of people grow in containers. If you have plants that you can grow that are that are you know uh, profitable to grow, especially because of value-added products, um, you can grow them in containers, but the yields won't be as high. Herbs are particularly good for container growing, and they will they will produce prolifically in containers, um, and then um, they can be easily cleaned and dried. Um, and I, I know several families in in Albuquerque that have little micro farming operations. They probably earn four or five thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, with their operation, so it's it's not a lot, but it's better than just packaging them up and, and giving them away because you have too many herbs. Yeah, yeah like certainly. I did last year. Certainly attractive, yeah. <laughs> well, well, we're out of time. We'll leave it there. The book is Micro Farming for Profit. The author is Dave DeWitt. His website is dave-dewitt.com, and uh, he, the book is out uh, now. And uh, we appreciate you uh, being with us. Uh, the uh, event at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, which was to have been uh, tomorrow night, is being rescheduled, and we think in, in June. So uh, stay tuned for details on that. Dave DeWitt, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, Tom. Thanks. Bye-bye. And uh, coming up tomorrow on the program, a uh, long-awaited memoir from former Logan resident Denise Turner. She's going to be back in town um, presenting this memoir. It's called Worthy, Memoir of Loss and the Search for Acceptance. She was raised in a Mormon household, and uh, she strives to find her place in the church, longing to be worthy of her mother's love. And when her mother dies in a suspicious house fire, she's to, forced to turn uh, to face the problems with the uh, stories she inherited, contemplating the price of worthiness. Turner grapples with the mystery of her mother's death, seeking to understand his, her mother's battle with chronic pain. Worthy is the memoir. My guest tomorrow will be Denise Turner. Hope you'll join us. Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. 
programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Sunshine Foundation. This is Randy Watts bringing more to life. Will you be a caregiver? For the first time, adult couples have more parents than children. How do you prepare for this new role? Communication is key to success in any job. The role of a caretaker is no exception. Begin with your parents' wishes. Talk to them about personal goals, housing, legal, financial, and medical decisions. Some of these conversations may be easy. Some will be difficult. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. What do all those lobbyists in Washington, D.C. do all day anyway? In their own words... We have to tell our story because if we don't tell our story, nobody else will. I'm Adrian Hill. A look at the 14,000 organization strong business of influencing government. Next time on Marketplace from APM. Tuesday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Baked by time like some multi-layer geologic tort, Canyonlands National Park in southeastern Utah features a landscape cut by canyons, rumpled by upthrusts, dimpled by grobbins, and even pockmarked, some believe, by ancient asteroids. Located just outside of Moab rises a kaleidoscope of tilted and carved geology laid down over the eons. There's the red and white Cedar Mesa sandstone, the grayish-green Morrison Formation, pinkish Entrada sandstone, and tawny Navajo sandstone, just to name some of the geologic layers. Stacked like pancakes, they help make Canyonlands the most rugged national park in the southwest, and, quite possibly, if you find yourself deep in the park's maze district in the entire lower 48 states. In each of the park's districts, the Island in the Sky, Needles, Maze, and Horseshoe Canyon, the remarkable effects of geologic time and its endless erosion on this sedimentary landscape rise about you. If you could turn back the geologic clock, you would see the landscape flooded by oceans, crisscrossed by rivers, covered by mudflats, and buried by sand. At various times through the millennia, the climate has resembled a tropical coast, an interior desert, and everything in between. For hundreds of millions of years, material was deposited, layer upon layer of sedimentary rock, formed as buried materials were cemented by precipitates in the groundwater. Each layer here contains clues to its origin, such as patterns or fossils, which reveal the environment which it was deposited. For example, the colorful Cedar Mesa sandstone occurred when periodic floods of iron-rich debris from nearby mountains inundated coastal dunes of white sand. Along with this sedimentation, movements in the Earth's crust altered surface features. The North American continent migrated north from the equator, and the local climate and environment here changed dramatically. Peer into the rugged maw of Canyonlands from the Island in the Sky District on the northern end of the park, and it's no mystery how the park came by its name. Spend the night at Squaw Flat Campground in the Needles District, and a morning hike into Chesler Park surrounds you with creamsicle-hued minarets towering high above like a king's crown. 
Though Canyonlands covers less than 350,000 acres, which is less than one-seventh the size of Yellowstone National Park, it feels much larger. No doubt it's the park's vastness and openness. You won't find any forests here. Indeed, one old-timer said that on a clear day, you can see the back of your own head. Spend a few minutes contemplating the natural forces and the hundreds of millions of years that laid down these sediments and compressed these layers of rock. It's really only recently that these layers have eroded to form the remarkable landscape seen today in Canyonlands National Park. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org. Wherever you are, whatever you happen to be doing, we'll take you to a concert at Lincoln Center in New York City. Pianist Emmanuel Axe joins the New York Philharmonic playing a keyboard concerto by Bach. I'm Fred Child. Join me for our daily musical tour on the next Performance Today from APM. Tuesday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Every day on Morning Edition, it's the news you can't do without. This morning, we've been looking at what's happening. There's conservatism, libertarianism, environmentalism, religion. We're not props. We're just everyday people. The crowd, the joy, the sense of hope. Historic. Listen tomorrow to Morning Edition from NPR News. Here on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.